Hello, I'm Marquita Curtis Haynes, host of the Ageless Glamour Girls podcast. In light of the recent horrific shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, I thought we'd revisit an earlier podcast episode on broken heart syndrome. You may recall that Joe Garcia, whose wife Irma Garcia was killed in the school shooting, died two days later. Doctors say he shows symptoms of broken heart syndrome. They were married for 24 years. Here now is that original podcast. Welcome to the Ageless Glamour Girls podcast. I'm your host, Marquita Curtis Haynes, CEO and founder of the lifestyle brand Ageless Glamour Girls. This is Wellness Wednesday, and today on the show, we're talking the vulnerable heart. We're continuing Heart Health Month in February with a look at what's called broken heart syndrome. I'll say it again, broken heart syndrome. Now, many of us have experienced it, though you may not even know it. That's because, according to doctors, it's easy to miss. It can also be hard to identify. Yes, breaking up with someone or worse, losing a loved one can cause it, but that's not the only thing. And ladies, we're most at risk. A recent study from the Journal of the American Heart Association suggests that cases are rising in the U.S., especially among middle-aged women and older women, and the group being hit the hardest, women between the ages of 50 and 74. You may have noticed that bottom number coincides around the start of perimenopause. Just saying. All right, we went straight to the top for answers on this important health subject. We're talking to the study's senior author. She's also director of public health research at Cedars-Sinai's Smith Heart Institute in Los Angeles. Dr. Susan Ching, a cardiologist, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Ching, exactly what is broken heart syndrome? It is a relatively under-recognized condition that, as you said, predominantly affects women more so than men, although men can still get it. And it's a syndrome that goes by many names. Uh, some of the technical names that we have um, uh, heard about, we look at the history of this syndrome and how it was first described, um, come from Japan, where uh, Japanese cardiologists and researchers uh, first uh, identified it. So one of the names is called Takutsubo syndrome. Takutsubo, uh, that word comes from um, the Japanese word for an octopus trap. An octopus trap is actually a, a ceramic or a stone made um, uh, type of pot where the neck is a lot narrower than, than the base. And that's mm -hmm. uh, the idea is there's it catches the octopus, it goes inside in the sea and it can't get out because you know, the, the, the head is too big to, to, to get back out. And, and the reason why this heart syndrome was called Takotsubo is because the shape of the heart when it's stunned in this particular syndrome looks like that octopus trap. And so that's one name for it. Another name for it is stress cardiomyopathy because the primary driver of this that has classically been described is stress from any source, emotional, psychological, physical, um, mechanical, uh, and biological, uh, any type of stress um, can cause this syndrome. Wow, we're gonna get more into that in a minute, but first, uh, so we can call it another form of heart failure, right? That's right. It is a form of heart failure. Traditionally um, or conventionally, we think of it as a transient or temporary form of heart failure. Um, in most cases, we fortunately see that the heart, although stunned when it first occurs and it first happens and the heart muscle weakens and, and the heart failure symptoms set in, 
we see that in most cases over time, that tends to get better, tends to resolve, but we're still trying to learn. We're still doing research to try and understand the degree to which that might not happen as perfectly as we would like in all affected individuals. Okay, now let's get to the symptoms or warning signs. Um, Because they might mimic a heart attack, but how do they differ from a heart attack? That's a great question. In in many cases, they can actually be very similar in heart disease apart. Um, in some of the classically um, uh, described first examples, every sign and symptom pointed to what looked like um, the patient or the affected person was having a, an actual heart attack. And so all the typical treatments and all the typical emergency procedures and protocols we put into place and put into action for this uh, person looking like they're having an actual heart attack, the classic chest pain, the classic shortness of breath, uh, perspiring, sweaty palms, sweaty um, uh, sweaty forehead uh, palpitations. And then finally, this person ends up in the catheterization lab, which is where we typically um, take people to treat them if they're having in the middle of an acute um, myocardial infarction, technical term for you know a classic heart attack. And then lo and behold, the coronary arteries are all clear. So this really, and then that's when the diagnosis typically gets made. The, the coronary arteries are clear, so it's not a garden variety heart attack, which is caused by cholesterol plaque rupture, a big clot forming in the coronary artery blocking flow. And yet the heart function is stunned. We can actually look at that in the catheterization lab also. That's where the classic diagnosis are typically made. So the symptoms can look very much like a classic heart attack. They can be heart disease apart if you're not thinking about alternate causes that um, that can also cause chest pain and shortness of breath. Wow. Wow. And it can come on all of a sudden, right? Suddenly. That's exactly right. It typically comes on all of a sudden. Um, and in some cases, maybe there's some you know subtle warning signs. There are you know, some subtle cues that, that this is happening. Um, but the, the most frequent uh, presentation is a sudden onset. Okay. Um, now, obviously, if you suspect something, uh, ladies, call your doctor immediately. As we mentioned earlier, that women make up a huge chunk of all cases. I read where nearly 90%, I think it was 88% to be exact. But yet again, it's hard to pinpoint exactly why. What's your take on that? That is the million dollar question. <laughs> Wish we knew. <laughs> and that, that, that's actually why we're doing all this work, uh, this hard work. Not only is it something that um, is underrecognized, so we need to do a better job recognizing it, it does predominantly uh, affect women more than men at a ratio of, you know, odds of, you know, nine to one, at least, if not more. And, and so part of the challenge has been why, try to find out why. And uh, we think it has something to do with the fact that we're biologically different. So females are biologically different than males. Chromosomally, we're different. Our hearts are shaped differently as we age. Those differences in our heart anatomy, structure, and function also continue to differ. And then, of course, uh, we have different hormones um, that sort of um, govern, you know, who, who we are uh, biologically different as, as as members of different sex, and and those things change over time. And there is this, as you mentioned, the perimenopausal transition. It's probably not the only explanation, or even potentially the primary explanation, but it's probably one factor. Um, we're still trying to understand why. What are the mechanisms that lead the the female heart to, at a certain age, be a lot more vulnerable to this particular stress-mediated condition than the male heart of similar age. Wow. And we keep going back to that same point, stress, stress, stress. Uh, Let's look at some of the other risk factors like high cholesterol, I think smoking, high blood pressure. That's right. Um, Are there any more of those main ones? 
we are trying to understand exactly what it is that makes a, a woman or man's heart vulnerable to the syndrome uh, that's different from the classic cardiovascular factors that makes the heart vulnerable to the more conventional types of heart disease. We are still working on that. We're still trying to understand what it is. We think maybe uh, it has something to do with inflammation. Maybe it has something to do with neurohormones or other types of hormones, not necessarily sex hormones, that make that heart muscle just more sensitive to stress. We do know that whatever it is, whatever it is, it has something to do with how that, that particular affected individual's heart muscle and the, the, the cells that make up the heart muscle for some reason are just more primed, more vulnerable to be affected by stress. And then what we mean by stress and the stress response is when you or I, you know, run to catch the bus or, you know, get a, um, uh, a, a stressful phone call or open the envelope and see a sort of a, a stressful bill or something in the, wow. the mail, you know, mm-hmm. The, the stress hormones, the stress hormones go up. So I'm not talking about sex hormones now. I'm talking about stress hormones. And those are normal hormones that help us with the flight or fight response, which is part of all human nature and physiology. Adrenaline. Adrenaline helps us get up in the morning. Adrenaline helps us, you know, run and catch that bus. Adrenaline helps us deal with, you know, traffic, really bad traffic when, when we're right. running late for work. Adrenaline. So when adrenaline surges in the midst of, or as a result of a major stressful event, that adrenaline surges throughout the whole body. And for some reason in, in individuals affected by broken heart syndrome, the heart muscle is very sensitive to that surge of adrenaline. And that's uh, what leads to this condition affecting some people. And for some reason, not others. And, and that's wow. the mystery. Wow. And as you, you just alluded to the emotional we're talking the emotional, yeah. physical, environmental stresses, natural disasters. I mean, because it's called broken heart syndrome, people automatically think, oh, it's from a broken heart, literally, you know, from a broken heart. But yeah. no, we're talking about if you're going through, you know, that you have a cancer diagnosis, job loss, exactly. car accident, uh, even severe pain, right? Can lead exactly. to this condition. That's exactly right. I, I can tell you that when I was a cardiology fellow at the Brigham Women's Hospital training to learn how to be a cardiology attending, I um, was involved in a case of a young woman who was previously perfectly healthy and just happened to need to go in for an elective surgery um, to remove some fibroids. It should have been routine in and out of surgery. And she wasn't even awake. She was under anesthesia, but her body experienced some such stress from the surgical procedure that her heart was affected. So she was trying to come as they were trying to get the team was trying to get her out of the anesthesia in the postoperative recovery area which really should have been a routine case. Her mm-hmm. heart was so sensitive to the stress of the surgery that it started to uh, fail, that it, it was stunned and was not pumping properly. And that's where we as wow. cardiologists were, were called in to, to make the diagnosis. So it can happen even when you're under general anesthesia or asleep, which, wow. is, which is kind of amazing. That, that's amazing. And you reminded me of the time years ago, I was having knee pain and mm-hmm. I remember walking outside and the pain was so horrific my heart started hurting <laughs> and I was like, Oh, check out that connection. Right. Exactly. You know, you just, you just, you just hit the nail on the head. The brain heart connection is really the center of all of this. You know, at the end of the day, you know, when my colleagues, um, you know, who I work with on this type of work likes to say, you know, as cardiologists, we think the heart is the most important organ when it's, it's really the brain, the brain controls everything. 
Mm. And so that that this is really the syndrome is really the prototypical, the exemplary example of how our brains are really connected to every single organ in our body, including our heart. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, for the most part, it's a temporary heart condition, even though I read that it, you know, on rare occasions it can be fatal. But what's the recovery time for broken heart syndrome and, and what are the treatments towards recovery? And that's a that's a good question. So we, we do believe that for the most part, in most cases, people recover their heart function, at least, you know, using the conventional ways that we can measure heart function. It can take days. It can take weeks. Sometimes it can take months. Um, in most people, it's on the order of uh, weeks to months. We can monitor the recovery of their function by taking moving pictures of the heart using ultrasound or, or other methods. And typically, we say, you know, we, we really try to get the, the, uh, the situation where if we can identify where the stress source is, try to avoid that stress, address that stress, you know, get control of that stress. Um, in situations where it's not easy to identify the source and or manage the source of stress, um, we will um, prescribe something called a beta blocker, which is a, a medication that helps to blunt the receptors on the heart that are uh, susceptible or vulnerable to that adrenaline, to the, to the stress hormones. And so we'll really try to uh, keep the heart protected, relaxed, and we will we'll try to identify the source of, of the stress and, and try to manage that. Um, there are some, some other medications called ACE inhibitors that can help the heart muscle kind of uh, remodel and, and heal in, in, in the right, uh, sort of remodel in the right direction and heal, hopefully in a more stable, progressive uh, fashion. We're still trying to find out what the best therapies are for this type of condition. We're also still trying to find out if there are some people we think there are who are at risk for developing this condition repeatedly and potentially having wow. longer term effects that we still have yet to understand because we, again, we're, we're not doing as good a job as we should at making the diagnosis. So we are still at the starting points of trying to uh, follow people longer term to understand what are truly the longer term effects. Wow. And here again, you know, we, we all know while we're on this journey, some things are out of our control, but we're able, we, we can't take the reins. So there are things that we could do to help ourselves and we know that self-care and rest, rest restorative care can go a long way. So what about meditation? Should we be looking at like breathing more throughout the day? Meditation, you know, yoga. I'm a big believer in meditation for everybody, for everything. <laughs> if we, if we <laughs> do that, you know, so funny. Some things in life, in health and medicine, um, have some of the potentially greatest benefits to us. Uh, uh, and I'm talking in the whole body sense not mm -hmm. just for specific disease conditions or specific organ systems. Um, and so meditation is one of those, it's understudied, uh, but I believe it's, it, it's, it's truly beneficial for those who can um, sort of figure out how to make it work. And that's, that's the trick. Um, the other mm -hmm. is exercise. And, yeah. you know, I, I, I have a saying, I, I often use my patients. I say, you know, if you could take everything that exercise does for you and put it in a pill, each pill would be worth a million dollars and every pharma company would be fighting tooth and nail for the formula. Exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. And, and, yeah. And the irony is the irony is exercise is actually free. <laughs> so that's, that's the punchline. That's the punchline. But the, the key you is, go. you know, we, we still struggle with trying to find the time trying to figure out what is the right exercise prescription for each person. Everybody's different. So, mm -hmm. you know, everybody needs to figure out on an individual level, what type of exercise works for me, for my lifestyle, for my schedule, 
for, you know, my resources, for my space, my environment, mm-hmm. all, all those things. And then for my medical and health needs, you know, am I somebody who has knee arthritis? And so I can't really do exercises that's going to, you know, the, of the type that's going to bother my knees. Or am I somebody who, you know, has access to a pool or doesn't have access to a pool? Or, you know, is it safe to walk around my neighborhood? All those issues need to be taken into account, but exercise, mm-hmm. all, all these things that are ironically, paradoxically free can be the kinds of things that can really help us keep our heart as well as our brains healthy. Thank you. I love that. Yeah. I, t- I try to walk every day and I'm like, it's free. It's fit. There's right. no cost to it. That's and right. if, if you're lucky enough to, to live in a certain neighborhood, where, you know, say a certain part of the country, you know, where the weather's great all year long. Um, that's even better. But if not, you, you have to find your groove, like you said, find your thing yeah, and uh, just work it out. Dr. Ching, this has been such a great discussion. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing this crucial information with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. And, and now I have to do this. I know you're busy, busy with other projects. Can you drop some nuggets on what you're working on for the near future um, that impacts women of a certain age? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Um, we are in the business of studying and doing research on all different types of factors that um, impact uh, females versus males comparatively across the lifespan. So youth all the way to uh, older age. We're particularly interested, of course, in what happens to us as we, we reach those advanced years as we age because things become more complicated. That's yes. when things become not only more complicated, but also more different, it turns out, between males and females, men and women. So, so we have been working on um, blood pressure in particular. How does blood pressure change over time? Uh, mm-hmm. And as we age in males versus females, how does that play out differently? How does that set us up uh, for different types of cardiovascular diseases and mm-hmm. neurocognitive and, and brain conditions? Um, you know, we all, always want to you know keep our brain at the end of the day. Actually, you know, it being the most important organ. How does that differ yes. as we age as, as, as females uh, and males? And of course, Takotsubo syndrome is, is really part of that, um, that line of inquiry because Takotsubo syndrome really is, you know, in the preeminent example of how the heart and the brain really are interconnected. And when, thing, when something goes wrong, uh, that connection becomes really obvious. And so we are doing a, a, a whole lot of studies um, sort of trying to understand how the heart and the brain are connected as we age, how blood pressures uh, and and blood pressure changes are part of the picture and how we might even one day uh, discover some, um, uh, some of the molecular um, uh, determinants, the underpinnings that, you know, Mm -hmm. take us beyond genes. Uh, What is it that we can um, try to determine um, about our our lifestyle, our diet? Uh, What are the things that we can potentially change to help keep us healthy and on track? Yes, I'm going to love that discussion because, you know, it's a great debate because if your parents had heart, high blood pressure or heart issues, does that mean that you're going to have it? And can you beat those odds? So that exactly. I want to talk about that. I love that. Yes. No, that's so key and so important. I always tell people, you know, um, when you think about genes, genes are kind of like um, I think of life as, as a game of cards and genes are the are the, the hand that you're dealt with. So it doesn't dictate whether you win or lose the game. How you win, how, whether you live, win, lose game is all about how you play the game with the cards mm. you're dealt with. So your genes are the cards that you're dealt with, but you have choice. And uh, your, your, your fate is not in your genes. It's not in the cards you're dealt with. You, it's how you play the game. And so that's what we're here to do is trying to figure out how can we help people figure out with the, 
with the, the hand of cards that are dealt with, how can they make the best of that and ultimately come out winners? I love that. That's a future podcast with you as a guest. <laughs> and we hope that you're going to come back on the show. We'd love to. Be a pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Susan Ching. Again, she's the author of a study on broken heart syndrome. And she's also the director of public health research at Cedar sinai Schmidt Heart Institute in Los Angeles. Dr. Susan Chang, you have been great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. Excellent information to protect the heart. Hashtag good stuff. And it's also very important information, of course. And that reminds me, I need to find a good meditation app. I'm open to suggestions. All right, listeners, if you have an idea for a podcast or if you want to be one of our guests, simply email us at info at agelessglamourgirls.com. Again, that's info at agelessglamourgirls.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. All right, lovies, thank you so much for tuning in to the Ageless Glamour Girls podcast. I'm Marquita Curtis-Haynes, founder and CEO of the lifestyle brand, Ageless Glamour Girls. Here's to healthy aging and joyful living. Reconnect soon. Bye-bye for now.